Make the choice to begin anywhere in your life, and the journey has started. We exist more than just to educate. We exist to also revitalize. And along the way, you can inspire others and be inspired. But now there's a new generation of scholars, and I am among them. If you really want to know who you are and what you are capable of, Howard is the choice for you. Take a moment. Listen to the stories by joining the president of Howard University, Dr. Wayne A.I. Frederick, and his guest on The Journey. Some of our nation's most renowned and influential physicians have served as the chair of surgery at Howard University's Hospital and College of Medicine. From Charles R. Drew and LaSalle de La Folle to Clive Callender and Edward Cornwell III, the individuals who have held this position have left behind a strong legacy of medical innovation and social impact. Hello, my name is Dr. Wayne Frederick, and my guest today on the journey is Dr. Andrea Hayes, the new chair of the Department of Surgery at Howard University College of Medicine and Howard University Hospital, the first woman to occupy this position. Her skills and experience as a leading pediatric cancer surgeon are already empowering her to take the Department of Surgery to new levels of excellence. Dr. Hayes, welcome to the journey. Thank you very much for having me. So we're going to go back to where it first began. Okay. You're a California young lady. Tell us where you grew up in California and what that was like. Oh, sure. I grew up in Los Angeles, California in a neighborhood called Baldwin Hills View Park area. Both my parents were teachers. My mother was a school principal. My father was a counselor at Los Angeles City College. I'm the oldest of three children. And it was a wonderful neighborhood. We had, it was mostly African-American and all sons and daughters, children of doctors, lawyers, et cetera. And me and Los Angeles didn't get along too well. So I ended up <laughs> leaving Los Angeles after high school and uh, moving to uh, New Hampshire where I attended Dartmouth College and Medical School for eight years. And that was a a fun environment as well. So you, you, you get to Dartmouth, which is, I would imagine, probably a little bit like high school in terms of your demographic representation, but clearly you blossom there. And Dartmouth has a reputation uh, that's probably a little different. What about Dartmouth um, interested you? Dartmouth was a fantastic place to train because it was a small environment. There's only 4,000 students, and we got really, uh, really a good... Um, time and ability to get together with our professors and get to know them better. It was really a free environment where we could go train in different parts of the world. We could go away to any part of the world really that we wanted to study. I chose to study religion at Dartmouth because it was something I was interested in. I knew I wouldn't study again knowing I was going into medicine. And there were a lot of subjects like that at Dartmouth and a true liberal arts education allowed you to do that. Also, it was free of distractions. It wasn't in the city. Yeah. <laughs> you sort of, the library was there, and, that, and you really got to know your classmates well. So that's what I enjoyed about it. Right. And then you obviously decided to do general surgery residency. Why general surgery? What, what was the draw? Or did you always have in mind to be a pediatric surgeon? Well, it's interesting. I, I had in mind that I wanted to be a surgeon, but I didn't know I wanted to be a pediatric surgeon. And I did a sub-internship at Stanford trying to show off, and I wanted to be uh, chosen to be a Stanford resident. But when I got there, they didn't have enough room on the general surgery service for another student. And so I was told I had to be on the pediatric surgery service, which I wasn't happy about because I didn't want to do pediatric surgery. I didn't think I wanted to. Mm -hmm. But I fell in love with it immediately, and my mentor at the time 
really was a pediatric surgical oncologist. And so that's how I got into it um, from that early age as a fourth year medical student. And so pediatric surgery fellowships are not easy to come by. Um, and it's, it's one of the more competitive um, fellowships in the country. As a matter of fact, I, I often tell people I feel like I know every African-American yes. female pediatric surgeon <laughs> who yes. ever trained because I think I could count them on, you know, just my, my fingers, um, if that many. So what, what was the process like and, and how did you navigate what seems to be a very, very competitive situation in order to land a uh, fellowship? Yes, you know, I, I was doing residency under the tutelage of Dr. Claude Organ, which is another giant in mm -hmm. African-American uh, surgery. And he really led me through the interview process and how to go through to try to become a pediatric surgeon. What he didn't tell me at the time was that if I got through, I would be the first African-American pediatric surgeon to be trained. He just kept telling me, you can do it, you're prepared, you're fine. And it was great to have a mentor and a sponsor in my corner like that. That was really critical. Uh, however, I did have to apply three years in a row. I did not match in pediatric surgery for a position the first, second, or third year. But the good thing that came out of that was I did a two-year fellowship at St. Jude's Children's Cancer Hospital and really enormously enjoyed my time there and began my research career there at, at St. Jude. And so once I finally matched in the third year, I ended up in Toronto at the Hospital for Sick Children, which was a phenomenal experience, an outstanding hospital and it all worked out. Um, at the time, I really just didn't know that I, was, that I might be the first. I kept saying, why didn't I match, and what happened? And finally, one of the other surgical faculty said, well, you know, there are none. And I said, what do you mean there are none? He said, there are no other black female pediatric surgeons. That's why you're having such a hard time. And, you know, I have a lot of faith in God, and I knew that was what I was supposed to do, so I just continued to persist uh, to get there. Okay, excellent, and obviously, our paths, uh, our paths intersected at MD Anderson. Yeah. I remember mm -hmm. uh, walking into a room with all the fellows and seeing you there. I think you were, you were doing uh, training there. Why surgical oncology as an aspect of pediatric surgery? You know, surgical oncology, surgery in general, if you back up just one step from that, you know, we have the privilege of opening up the human body and healing it. And in surgical oncology, you're removing this evil mass of a tumor and restoring the patient to health. And that's really a privilege, an awesome privilege, and that's something I really enjoy. The, the surgical oncology in pediatrics is rare, and so it takes additional training to be able to do it well. And it also takes a perspective on how it fits in with the rest of oncology. So I really appreciated my time at MD Anderson when I was training, because mm -hmm. it allowed me to have a context for pediatric surgical patients as far as the oncology is concerned. You're listening to The Journey. My guest today is Dr. Andrea Hayes, professor and chair of the Department of Surgery at Howard University College of Medicine and Howard University Hospital. And you obviously operate now on a very rare uh, disease. Maybe you can tell the audience a bit about that disease and the, the incidents, why we, we say it's rare and where you think it's heading in terms of treatment. Yes, this a disease that has a very long name called desmoplastic small round cell tumor, but it's extremely rare. We think there's maybe 150 to 200 cases per year in the whole United States. Um, I encountered a patient at St. Jude who had this, who uh, succumbed to the disease, and I became curious at that point. At that time, the, in 1998, no one knew very much about it. It was only really described in, in the 1990s, and there wasn't much written about it. So I began to study it and to understand 
what it was. It's interesting because it doesn't just start with one lump like other cancers do. It starts with dozens to hundreds of tumors in the abdominal cavity. And so previously, before I started working on the disease, most surgeons would look at the imaging, the CAT scan or the MRI and say, oh, there's no way I can get all this out. There's just too much disease. But what I learned from some of the adult patients that were being treated at MD Anderson was that you actually could remove all these tumors. It takes 12 to 20 hours to do so. And, and some patients I remove up to 2,000 tumors. But after all that surgery, you can wash the abdominal cavity with really hot chemotherapy, about 105 degrees. And that heated chemotherapy will kill the microscopic cells and keep the tumor from coming back. So I was the first one to do that procedure in a child and to show that it was safe. And once you show that it's safe, then we're tasked with showing that it's effective. And so I was able to do that over about a 10-year period. And I've perfected the technique now and had some nuances to it, so it's very safe. And in select patients, it does provide a long life and relief of their disease. And, and what's the age range of the patients that you've operated on? The youngest one I've done that procedure on has been 22 months old. The median age is around 18 years old. So it goes up into young adulthood, into the 20s and 30s mostly. Now, you've held significant um, positions of responsibility as you've moved through your academic career, which then um, led you here as not just the first um, female chair in our department. When you think of uh, the, the role and your journey there, what are some of the things you think were extremely important uh, along your journey? Yeah, the journey in getting to be chair, a woman chair of a department of surgery is a long one because when you start off, of course, in medical school, in medical schools now, it's sort of 50-50 women, but certainly African-Americans are a much smaller percentage. Mm -hmm. And then when you get to surgery training, it's really dominated by men. The training is long. I did 11 years of training total to be a double board certified in adult and pediatric surgery. And so that training and being in a predominant male environment takes a personality that can morph, that can fit in, and that can lead in that environment. And so there are not very many people that can rise through that. Uh, it's, a, it's a very unique skill, uh, honestly, for a woman to, to be able to do that. So not only do I have to be outstanding in the operating room, I have to be able to communicate with my colleagues who are mostly male and help them you know, be, be in a position where they have some respect for me. So it's, it takes time and patience, but um, you know, as, as uh, Dr. Drew said, excellence of performance will outweigh any artificial barriers overcome by men. So I think I've overcome them as a woman and some very few women do. Uh, but once you get there, it's, it's very special. Um, I think it's, I'm really honored and excited to be leading the Department of Surgery. Uh, there have been some phenomenal people before me, and I hope to live up to that. So you're here now. Um, the College of Medicine is going through a significant transformation, as you just mentioned, um, in a number of women, and medicine now is rising. Um, after a significant gap for decades, um, it has closed so that 50 to 60% of um, each incoming class now are women. And also, you have a hospital that's building a new, um, going to build a new facility um, through the Adventist leadership. What are some of your goals as you see uh, the future of the department in terms of what you'd like to achieve, as well as uh, what you'd see overall for the College of Medicine? Yes, I have three main goals, really. 
One is to make even better the quality and safety in the hospital uh, when it comes to surgical care. And the second is being supportive of the faculty and enhancing faculty development. It's important for Howard to continue our tradition of having excellent research be done and have that research get throughout the United States as well as throughout the world. So my second goal is to enhance faculty and bring on more faculty that, are, that will enhance it even more. And the third is discovery. We need to be on the forefront of new discoveries. And really that's a responsibility we have to our community. Uh, the community that we serve has a unique genetic profile that we really don't know a lot about. We know it's different. We know it probably in certain diseases doesn't respond the same as a treatment to other persons that are not of color. And so we have a lot to learn about who we are physiologically. And so I plan to use as to really work with the community so that not only we can provide better access to care, but we can provide better treatments that are cutting edge and are tailored to our community. Why is diversity so important in the treatment of disease? Disease has no uh, necessarily no ethnicity, etc. So, but why do you think it's so important in terms of getting better outcomes? I think that there are, uh, there are complex societal things and environmental pressures on different uh, aspects of who we are, not necessarily related to the color of our skin, but the communities that we grow up in and the environment that we just don't know. We don't have a lot of answers to. And if we don't have that diversity of not only patients, but of physicians and surgeons and providers, then we won't ask the right questions. You have to be able to ask the right questions to get the answers that, that are going to really move things forward. And if you have a homogenous population, then you really are never gonna get there. Uh, you know, as we uh, wrap up for the medical student who's listening in and is thinking, you know, I wanna do surgery, I'd love to become a pediatric surgeon for um, the middle schooler uh, who's going to hear this and say, you know, mom, I want to be the next Dr. Hayes. And um, even for the high school student who is thinking of, you know, where they should be going to college, why Howard? Oh, Howard's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing that comes to mind. You know, I really jumped on the opportunity to be here. I think it's in anybody's career, certainly in my career, speaking for myself, I'm going to work very, very hard at whatever I do to work very, very hard for something as meaningful as moving our community forward and making our community healthier, is there's nothing like it. I mean, there's no other university like it in the country um, to have this access in the nation's capital to the community that we have. It's just an incredible opportunity, it really is. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, thanks for being here. My guest today was Dr. Andrea Hayes. Professor and Chair of the Department of Surgery at Howard University College of Medicine and Howard University Hospital. I'm Dr. Wayne Frederick. Please join me next time on The Journey.